Thank you, Mike, from that message through song. I do want to give you by way of reminder as we uh, come to our time in the Word today that also a part of our Father's Day celebration here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church is we collect a love offering for Oneida Baptist Institute. Now, Oneida Baptist Institute is one of our mission partners here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. We have several uh, efforts. We have several missions groups that we have come alongside with a long-term relationship. Um, Our local Kentucky one is the Oneida Baptist Institute, um, which is located in Oneida, Kentucky. Um, It is a Christian school uh, nestled in the mountains of eastern Kentucky where people come from all over the world, believe it or not, to get an education. One of the main things it does is minister to the people of Clay County and provide an education alternative for them, a Christian education alternative. If you live in Oneida, the city, the the city, the uh, town of Oneida, um, you can attend Oneida Baptist Institute for free. Um, It is an amazing place. We go there and volunteer um, every year. We've not done so since COVID, but we plan to begin those back up, if not this year, most certainly next year. And this offering helps them to to cover their budget, helps them to to be able to take in kids from all over the world. They have dormitories actually on campus, feeding them all of those type of things and allows that school to run. And so we want to encourage you as we go through the message, as we get into the message this morning and as we close out our time in service today, um, that you would prayerfully consider giving to Oneida Baptist Institute as part of the Father's Day offering. You can do that. We will have uh, deacons in the back holding plates um, right next to the plates where you can give your regular tithes and offerings. And we'll also, you can also do that online through tunnelhill.org slash give for those of you watching online. Um, and you can give an online gift there just by putting in a love offering and marking that it's for Oneida, O-N-E-I-D-A. Um, with that being said, let's turn into our scriptures to Titus chapter 3. Believe it or not, we are already jumping into the very last chapter of the book of Titus. You can see why after doing uh, 30 plus, 40 even uh, chapters in Ezekiel, uh, that Titus seems to go extremely quickly. And uh, that's why we're going to, when we finish up Titus here in the next week or so, we are then going to jump over to the book of James and spend a little bit more time in the New Testament before we go to the Old Testament So we are going to be in Titus chapter 3, and today I am going to be reading verses 1 through verse 8. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says this. He says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, Deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. 
And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Please be seated. I believe that there are certain attitudes and actions that are mission killers for both Christians and for the church. We here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church believe that we exist right here, right now, in this very day and age to do the work of the kingdom in the Tunnel Hill area and beyond. We as a church have have, uh, declared that we are going to accomplish this mission in two ways. First, by fulfilling the Great Commission that is found in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which read, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Second, we accomplish this mission by being obedient to the greatest commandments found in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. That reads, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, we here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church are accomplishing our mission when we love God and love people to such a degree that we are willing to call them into relationship with God through Christ and lead them into greater obedience to God through his word. So what are the things that can kill our desire and our ability to accomplish this mission? I don't think there is any question that every church, no matter how clear or maybe even how vague they make their mission as a church, can have seasons and have even individuals within that church that 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 never really get on board with that mission or allow themselves to begin to take on attitudes and actions, even habits that are mission killers for the Christian and for the church today. As we look into our text, we are looking at a mission killer that undoubtedly existed within the church and therefore Paul had to address within the church of Crete. You may say, what is this mission killer? When you look at this passage, you're like, I'm not seeing a mission killer here. What what might be the problem that Paul is addressing within this church And the problem is, as I read this and as I I studied this passage, the problem that Paul is most likely addressing in this church is something that I like to call church arrogance. I didn't want to say Christian arrogance. I wanted to say church arrogance. It is an arrogance that that shows up inside of church buildings, inside of church bodies. That is a mission killer to define the term. Church arrogance is the mindset That because I am a Christian and because I am a child of God, that I am in some way better than the world around me or the people around me. Therefore, I do not have to engage the world nor associate with anyone outside of my Christian community. And I will look upon the culture around us, pointing out its failures and lifting up my superiority. The mindset and all of the actions that come with this is without a doubt a mission killer. 
It will destroy the very reason why we as Christians have been called into the body of Christ. And it will destroy the mission of the church, especially as we know it here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church. Paul's answer to this church arrogance is the title of our message today, which is humble obedience. Now, let me show you how our passage today points us to this idea of humble obedience. Now, Paul is continuing a, a kind of um, uh, uh, a pattern that we've already seen in the passage thus far. As we look back in Titus chapter 2, we begin to recognize that what Paul is doing in this passage is he's telling them what to do, and then he is telling them why to do it. He's saying, do these things, and then he goes back to say, and you're doing these things because of these reasons. This is the same in, in Titus chapter 3. He begins with some very clear instructions, even commands, as to what the, the body of Christ and what the church is supposed to be doing, unlike... Chapter two, Paul has kind of shifted his focus in chapter two. Paul was addressing the church and how it should interact within itself. How should the young men and the young uh, and the old men interact? How should the older women and the younger women interact? How should should slaves and masters interact? He looked at all of those things and said, how should we as the body of Christ treat each other and act in accordance with each other and take care of each other? Today, he begins to shift that focus and not so much on how do we act within the body of Christ, but how does the body of Christ begin to interact with the world around us? What does he call us to do? First, he calls us to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, before we start getting into all of the qualifiers for being obedient, and I'm sure that there's some libertarian in our group today that is immediately starting to pucker at this idea of submitting and being subject to ruling authorities, I want us to just look at the very end of verse 1. It says this at the very end of verse 1, the last little clause that, that they attach to this passage is this, to be ready for every good deed. This is how Paul wants us to be subject to our civil leaders, subject to the leadership that God has placed over us, whether it be um, police officers, whether it be um, our, our elected officials or any other lawmaker. It says that we are to be ready and even I would even add to this eager for every good deed. Paul wants us to be subject to our civil leaders by being a blessing to the community in which we have been planted. So I don't need to hear all of the reasons why we don't have to be submissive. I want to see how we are going to be eager to do every good deed ready. Tunnel Hill Baptist Church should be, um, should matter to the Tunnel Hill area, to E-Town, to Hardin County, even to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We should be doing good and people who have no relationship with Jesus Christ should be getting introduced to Tunnel Hill by the way that they love them and care for them and, and pray for them and are concerned with them. And when even able, meeting physical needs along with those spiritual needs. We should have a name and a reputation in the community, not that we should be obsessed with that name and reputation, but they should know, if anything else, that we are ready for every good deed. Beyond this, Paul calls them, and I love kind of this listing of words that he gives here. He says he calls them to malign no one. 
but to be peaceable and gentle. How is your Facebook feed doing today? Again, we see this passage summed up at the end of verse 2. And as we look at the end of verse 2, it says this. It says, showing every consideration for all men. So not only are we called to be a blessing to the community at large, should, should neighborhoods and Tunnel Hill and, and, and our police department and our, our, government, uh, our government agencies and all that know who we are and know that we are eager to do good, ready to do good for our, for our community, but also every individual we encounter should know that we have a, 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 a real... I'm, I can't even get the words out. I'm so excited this morning. That when, when we meet people in public, when we meet people in every interaction, they should know that we actually care about them. That's really, you know, there's, there's nothing fake about that, by the way. What we're saying here is not that you should care, you should act like you care about people. How many people here can pretty much tell if someone's just being fake as all get out and they're not being authentic? Most of us. So why would we try to fake it? They can tell. That's not what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling us to have an actual concern and care for the people that we interact with, especially the lost people, the people that are not connected to the body of Christ. So much so that we would show every consideration for all people. And as the old saying goes, all means all, and that's all that all means. Think about how profound that statement is for just a second. That we should give, as we love people, that we should give all consideration for all people. You are going to meet people in your life that you are not going to agree with. I am sure that is a shock to you. And here's the most amazing thing. You are going to meet people in your life that you are not going to agree with. And it doesn't matter how much you try to argue with them. When it is all said and done, they are still not going to agree with you. Are you shocked? Probably not. But you can show love towards them. You can be gracious towards them. You can be what the, the passage says. You can be considerate. And you can show them that you actually can care about who they are, even if you do not agree with them. We do not get to pick and choose who we treat well. We do not get to pick and choose who we are gentle with. We do not get to pick and choose who we want to lift up on social media and who we want to smash down. But rather... We need to show love and grace to all, not maligning no one, being peaceable and gentle. And brothers and sisters, that even means when they are not going to be peaceable and gentle back. This is really hard stuff to do. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian. I don't think one of now, now I will acknowledge the fact and I'm sure many of you will confirm the fact I don't mind being confrontational. I think I've got a small reputation for that. I don't mind saying no. I don't mind disagreeing. I don't mind telling you that I disagree with you. But I will say this. 
I think it is far harder to love someone and to be peaceable and gentle with them, even when you disagree with them, than it is to just hammer them because they look like a nail. I think that's easier. I think the flesh can take over and our emotions can run wild and we can just look at people and we can just destroy them with our words. I think that's in our character and in our nature as sinful people. But to go to someone and that you disagree with, that you know disagrees with you, that you may have completely different outlooks on life and all that stuff and still treat them with respect and consideration to not malign them, but to be peaceable and gentle, that is hard work. And as I was even thinking about what it is calling us to do in this passage, I kind of realized that we need God. Amen. We need the Holy Spirit to take over in our life so that we can respond in these ways. Any idiot can get into a fight. I know this for a fact because there are so many idiots on social media fighting. But it takes a true man or woman of God to be peaceful, gentle, and considerate. And so we need to rely on the Lord as we begin to interact with the world around us. Paul goes on to answer the question, why? Why is it that we need to to do these things? Why is it that we need to show consideration for all men and be ready to do every good deed? Why is it that we as the church are called to do something after we've become a child of God? Jason and I were talking before he he got baptized this morning. And and if he'll remember and he'll nod here in just a second, I said, I want you to understand something. When you get baptized, this is not the end of your spiritual journey. You haven't arrived When you get baptized, you're just taking your first step. And that the the life of being a Christ follower is not something that is done once you've got saved and got baptized and become a member of a church. But it is something that begins when you give your life to Christ and pass through those baptismal waters. And then you begin to walk with Jesus. And Paul is talking about what that walk with Jesus is actually supposed to look like. Why is it that we have to do these things? And the answer is quite simply this, because they are who we were. Every person that you disagree with, every person that you meet that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and because of that reflects that in their life, they are who we were. We were never called to look at them as a them or to see them as our enemy. Rather, we are supposed to look at them and see ourselves. Notice again what he says in the passages as we continue on in this. And in verse one, he says, for we also were once foolish ourselves. And then begins to expand upon what that means. He says, you look at them and you might look at the outside world and look at at, at the, the country we live in and the culture we live in. And you think that they are foolish, that they do not know God. But never forget that you too were once foolish and then begins to describe that foolishness. First, she says that we were disobedient. Notice in this passage, this is just a little thing. He says, for we once also were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. He's not saying they are. He's saying you were. 
Now, I think the implication is this is what you're engaging with, but don't forget that this is who you were. We were disobedient. And it doesn't matter if you got saved when you were eight or you were 88. There was a point in your life where God had given you how to live for him and you chose something else. That is the very definition of sin. Do you want to put up the three circles, Zach or Brittany? You want to put up the three circles? If you still remember how to do that, these screens, man. We have God's design. And the first thing that we do when God gives us his design is we leave God's design. And that's called sin. That's coming up. There it is. Everyone here is guilty of that. And like I said, whether you are eight or you are 88, every single one of us here is guilty of that. We have been disobedient. But then I want you to begin to see the words that he uses next. The next thing he says, he says, for we were we were foolish. We were disobedient. Then look at the next one. He says we were deceived. And I as I was reading this, I couldn't help to kind of see a connection here. And I wanted to connect the word deceived to the idea of being of the malice and the envy and hate. So look again, it says, he says, for we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient and deceived. And then I want you to go to the end. It says spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I think we often are deceived in life that we can find meaning and purpose, that we find identity, that we can get caught up in our life through malice and envy and hate. We get caught up in the drama of who is with us and who is against us. And we talk about these things, even as Christians, about those people are against us. But these people, which denominations do we like? Which denominations do we not like? Who is our friends? Who is our foes? Who in the culture is, will support us and who in the culture is against us? And we start to create all these lies. And there is many a Christian who has been caught up in this idea of who we are supposed to hate and be jealous of, who we are supposed to have malice towards and envy towards and hate and hating one another. And I want to tell you this today. If you are caught up in this, you are wasting your life. Because this is not what God has called you to do. God did not give a single person in this room a line to draw. He gave you good news to declare. And too often we get deceived into believing that's what we're here to do. Not only are we deceived, but it goes on to say that we are enslaved. Notice again what it says in the text, that we are a slave to various lusts and pleasures. We are snared by our own desires, driven to pursue worldly pleasures that will never satisfy us. If you want to put the next thing up there, Brittany, we see that, that we call that in our church brokenness. And every single person in this room has felt that brokenness. Everyone. And when we look out on the world that's outside of the body of Christ, I don't even want to say of this room, I mean outside of the body of Christ, we are looking at broken people trying desperately to escape their brokenness. And they're doing that through ungodly relationships. They are doing that through 
pursuing worldly pleasures like it talks about in this in this thing. Comfort, lavish lifestyles, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. And what they don't realize is they are trying to escape brokenness, but all it is doing is further locking them into that brokenness. It is not just that they are stuck there. They are enslaved to it. These words are not meant for us to be able to look at them and be all hoity-toity that we figured it out, but to rather look at them and recognize that these are people who have been deceived and enslaved. And what often makes it worse is they don't even know it. This is who each and every one of us was before Christ came into our life. This is who each and every one of us would still be if Jesus had not come into our lives. No exceptions. We can look at the most holy person in this room. Whoever you think that might be. And if Christ had not entered into their life. They would be foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved. I don't care how many how many uh, diplomas you hang on the wall. High school diploma, associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree doctorate if there's anything past doctorate i don't care how smart you are without christ in your life you are foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved none of us would have escaped this characterization apart from christ coming into our lives not one of us think about that for just a moment Now, let me ask you this question. If you were still in that place. If you were still living deceived and enslaved by the enemy and by the world and even by your own flesh. How would you want to be treated? Would you want to be yelled at? Would you want fingers pointed at you? Would you want to be told that you are a lost cause and unworthy of their time? Would you want to be ignored? Would you want people to pretend like everything was fine and that you were okay? Even though maybe deep down in your heart, you know that you have been deceived and enslaved. If deep down in your gut, you know that you were broken. If you knew you were broken, would you want someone lying to you and telling you you were okay? Would you want them to treat you poorly because you did not look like them or talk like them or act like them or even understand the difference between you and them? My guess is no. In fact, rather, my guess is, is that you would want to be treated with compassion. 
You would want someone to love you enough to tell you the truth and not just tell you the truth once when maybe you weren't quite ready to hear it, but to tell you the truth over and over and over again, to show you the truth, to live the truth in front of you so that you could see the truth so that maybe just maybe one day you might hear the truth, hear good news and believe. It is for this reason that Jesus said, go and learn what it means when he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not call the righteous, but sinners. There is a lost and dying world out there, a world that Jesus came to. And he did not come to them with more religion and more rules. He did not come to them with more church services and suits and ties. But rather, he came to them with compassion and with good news. The commands that Paul gives to these people may seem to be a surrender to the culture war in which we seem to be engaged. But in reality, it is the only way that we will ever win this war. I love a quote that is by Shane Pruitt, who is the next gen director of the North American Mission Board. And he says this, the world is not our friend. And that's something that we should remember. And that's not what I'm saying here today. That we need to go be like the world. The world is not our friend, but it is also not our enemy. And while we don't need to look like the world, we don't need to circle our wagons and build a silo so that the world doesn't know who we are or what we do. He says the world is not our friend, but is also not our enemy. It is our mission field. And we need to see it that way. Because the heart of the message is not, I saved myself, but rather that God saved us. And I want you to understand this, that it is his will that those other people, that those who are outside of the body of Christ be saved also. As he often does, Paul begins the final part of our passage with this wonderful word, but... I love it when Paul is going and then suddenly he says, but. Verse four, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved. We were wasting our lives, but the kindness of God's love appeared. We were all these things. And yet God still showed up in our lives. He still showed up in a big way so that he saved us. We did nothing it was not our deeds. It was not our good works. It was not our religiosity or the title Baptist. It was not church services or vacation Bible schools. It was not church camps or, or any great spiritual pastor leader guru. It was not Billy Graham who saved you. And it will not be Josh Luton who saves you. It will be the one and only Jesus Christ who showed up to save you from your sin. Romans 3.27 says this, and I think we should put it all over the building. It says this, where then is boasting? It is excluded. We have no right to be arrogant towards the world at all. 
There is no room for arrogance in this church and in this church building. In fact, the very phrase church arrogance ought to be an oxymoron because the church should recognize that we are saved solely by God's gracious work through Christ Jesus. We can't be arrogant because we are nothing without Christ. But in Christ, we are heirs with Christ. And he is calling a lost and dying world, a world that is deceived and enslaved into the family along with us. I just couldn't write this message without quoting Ephesians chapter 2. That reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. See, brothers and sisters, the only difference between the us and the them is God's grace and the Holy Spirit's, Holy Spirit's presence inside of us. And this is something that God wants to pour out on them just as much as he has already poured it out on us. We are the children of God solely because of what God has done. And we have the mission of sharing that good news so that the people out there who do not know Christ will experience Christ through us. See, church arrogance can kill God's mission. But when we remember that we are sinners just like them, when we remember that God saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and when we respond with humble obedience, eager, ready for every good work, giving all consideration for all men so that through that all men might hear the gospel and be saved. When we have humble obedience to God's command, our compassion and our love for people will draw them to the Lord. And we will be able to share with them the good news and be saved. And they might be saved. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that we figured it out but that God did everything for us. In fact, as we look at our line here, we see that we are trapped in brokenness and we are surrounded by a world trapped in brokenness and that no matter how hard they try, they will not be able to get out of their brokenness on their own. But they remain stuck in, deceived and enslaved. And so something outside of that deception, outside of that enslavement, outside of that brokenness needs to step in in order to deliver him. And that's where the good news of the gospel is. The word gospel means good news, and it's the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he lived the perfect life, not to show us we could, but he lived it because we couldn't. And then he died on the cross for our sin, and he rose from the grave three days later. And the Bible says that if we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be saved, that we will be delivered from our brokenness. The Bible says it this way, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
See, when we believe, that means we recognize that Jesus was everything he said he was. That God stirs up our hearts to the truth of the gospel and we believe. And we recognize that, that, these, that these words are true, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and he did indeed rise from the grave. And when we confess him as Lord, that is what that word repent means. See, sin is taking us one way. But when we repent and, re and turn to the gospel, we turn another way. We cease the direction that leads us to brokenness and we begin to turn around and begin to pursue Christ. And then through the power of the gospel, we're able to begin to recover and pursue God's design for our life. There is a world that we live in that desperately needs to hear this good news. In fact, the only difference between us and them is this good news. Why, oh, why would we withhold this news from them? Because they need it. And it transformed us and it will transform them. And if you are with us today and you've suddenly just gone, wait a minute. I might be that them people that he keeps talking about. I don't even know why I came here today, but now I'm looking at this picture up here and I'm recognizing the fact that that I, I haven't done all of this. In fact, I'm I'm still stuck in that brokenness. I ask you this question today. What is preventing you from giving your life to Jesus? What is preventing you from believing and making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. You look around this room and this is not a room of people that figured it out. Or that are living some sort of miraculous holy life because we willed it so. We are people just like you and just like everyone else in this world. But we heard the good news and we believed. Will you believe today? As we close our time in prayer this morning, we would invite you, if you'd like to know more about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I'm going to be standing up front. You don't have to come up here to get saved. Because you are probably here today with someone who can explain this to you and, and help you um, give your life to Jesus. But I will be here nonetheless. And if you are ready to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and you want to have a conversation with me about it, we invite you to come forward. If you're here today and you recognize that that church arrogance has begun to creep into your life and because of it, that humble obedience has started to, to disappear from your life and you're ready to just repent of that and get back on track with God, we invite you to just come up to the steps and pray. To just take that to the Lord and say, God, I haven't been doing what, what, I, what you've clearly called me to do. And I'm ready to, to hand over this arrogance to you and, and to take the obedience back. If God has spoken to you today, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. And we'll do that as Joe sings our last song. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we praise you that you have saved us. God, we recognize that we did not save ourselves, but rather you saved us. And that the only difference between us and anyone else that you have ever created is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, it is my hope and my prayer that you would stir up the hearts of each and every person in here to both receive the good news of the gospel, to believe and be saved. 
and also to go and to tell people the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we will be um, ready for every good work, that we will show all consideration to all men, that we will be all things to all people so that we might all means win some. For God, we know that there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the message of the gospel is the message by which people are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so God, help us to be a church that not only proclaims the gospel, but lives the gospel every day. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.